You're listening to the North Canton Chapel Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, good morning, North Ken Chapel. Good to see everybody. It's all right. We were uh, away for two weeks. By, by way of away, I mean we were staying at home on a staycation, which is like a great vacation because like everything else that needed to get done finally got done. The to-do list is through. We're all happy, but it's good to be back with you this morning. Um, at one point over the last couple weeks, I asked one of the easiest questions a husband can ask a wife. Mandy threw a softball right across the plate, and I whiffed big time. I asked her, she was upstairs doing something, I said, hey, is there anything that I can do for you? How can I serve you? What can I do? Easiest question ever, right? And she just lobbed a softball right across the plate. She goes, could you just do the dishes, right? This is an easy thing to do. Want to hear how I whiffed it? Here it goes. Because I live in a house with three teenagers. My question was, this is such a dumb move. I said, is it more important for you that the dishes get done or that I do them? Because what I was thinking was like, I can empower some leaders here, right? Like, I could go do it. And she goes, you're an idiot. Go do the dishes. I'm like, all right, on it. She didn't quite say it that way, but it was clear. That's what we're doing. Happily. So this text today that we're going to be in is one of those texts that um, is just a tough one. And you know it, you heard it read. This text deals with submission and authority in three different relationships in our life. This is a tough one. seems like this text suffers from two extremes. Either this text is manipulated and twisted, or it's avoided and ignored. Either this text becomes like theological starting fluid, like pour gas on fire, or it's like theological kryptonite, like I don't want to touch it, like get away from me. Here's the thing, neither extreme is helpful. You can't understand what you won't acknowledge, and you can't apply what you won't see. And so as a church, you've already heard us say this like two or three times this morning, we want to try and do hard things well, and that definitely applies to this text today. So we're not going to avoid this text. We're going to walk in courageously, confidently, but very humbly. So where are we, though? How do we get here? If this is your first Sunday, it's in the North Canton Chapel. If you're watching online for the first time, you're going, we're talking about what now? This is the end of a teaching series this summer through the book of Ephesians. This is week 12 of 13. Having called us to live new life in Christ, Paul now offers us three relationships as a practical way of playing this new life out. Marriage, parenting, and work. These are three places where our new life in Christ can come out to play. And this is the most specific and most directive that Paul is going to get in Ephesians. So here's where we're going today. We're going to talk about what each of these three relationships mean and what they don't mean. We're going to draw three conclusions based on what they share in common. It's actually quite a bit. And then I want to give us some practical ways to apply what God's word says about each of these relationships. Before we do any of that, though, I think it's good to talk for a minute about how to approach hard texts in the Bible. I'm not the only one who stumbles across a text when I'm reading or in my personal study or I come across it and I go, gosh, what in the world does that mean? 
And for this, I want to siphon the words of one of my favorite uh, pastors, teachers, theologians, Charles Spurgeon. Here's what he says. I like to read my Bible so as never to have to blink when I approach a text. I like to have a theology which enables me to read it right through from beginning to end and say, I am as pleased with that text as I am with any other. Now, what does he mean? When approaching tough texts, and this one absolutely is, we need to remember God's word will never contradict God's character. I know my God is good, and so his word must be good. I know that my God is wise, and so his word must also be wise. If my God, who is good, thought to write it, I should not shrink back in fear from it or resist to put myself under it. And so whatever this means in any part, whatever it means, I can trust that it will be good for me because he wants good for me. And so a couple more introductory points before we even get to the text. Um, First, these three relationships, marriage, parenting, and work. First point that I need you to hear. These relationships are common. They are not essential. Paul's going to talk about marriage, parenting, and work. These are common examples, not essential mandates. And I say that because I know that a good many of you this morning in here and a good many online are single or you don't have kids or you're divorced or you're not employed right now. And you need to hear me. That does not make you a second-class Christian. And too often, churches unintentionally communicate that unless you're married with kids and you got a job that's well-paying and respectable, that you're not part of the thing. That's not true. So before we go any further, these relationships are common, but they are not essential. Second point of intro, and then we'll get to it. These relationships are transcultural. Now, I think there's a tendency when we get to these words that Paul's going to use to see them as bound to their immediate historical context, like submit, ooh, that's a fun one, bond servants, masters, oh, geez. So there's a tendency to look at this and go, well, maybe that was first century Ephesus, but this is 2023, we've moved beyond this, our world is so different that this kind of like just is playing in two different keys, right? Some things have changed, yes, and some of these words and images are connected to Paul's context, but not everything has changed. Few things have actually changed, and we'll talk more about that. These are transcultural relationships. God's word is just as relevant today as it was the day that it was written. Third point of intro, um, these relationships are so fragile, which is why this is so tense. These relationships are so fragile. There are a few relationships that bring me greater joy in my marriage to Mandy, my parenting relationship with our three kids, and the work relationships that I enjoy here at North Canton Chapel, many of whom I'm happy to call my friends. But, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands here, There are a few relationships in your life that cause you more stress than marriage, parenting, and work relationships. Do not nudge anybody that you're sitting next to. This is not how you play this. Now, here's why these relationships are put in front of our faces at this point. Because Paul wants us to understand that because these relationships are so common and they show up in so many cultures everywhere, you can't get away from them and you need God to help you with them. 
This is God through Paul saying, these relationships are too fragile, too precious, too important to try and get by without God. So quick recap, then we'll get to it. These relationships are common, not essential. They are transcultural, and they are fragile. So with all that, let's get to it. Three sets of relationships. Relationship number one, marriage. Let's take a look in verse 22. He says, wives. Okay, first things first. Don't go any further. Just hang here. Who is Paul talking to? Is he talking about women? No. Wives. More broadly, maybe those who may one day become wives. So whatever he's about to say has less to do with gender, and it has more to do with role. This is a very important distinction. Paul is not addressing women in general, but wives in particular. And so this is not a value conversation. This is a functional conversation. You see the distinction? Here's the word. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Interestingly, that word isn't even in the original Greek. It literally reads, wives, to your husbands. He's borrowing the word submit from the verse that came before it. So he says, submit to your own husbands. And then comes the reason in verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. We'll come to this. And then to make sure we get it, he summarizes in verse 24. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, this text obviously hangs on the word submit, and it is a tough one. Like, do whatever he says? Is that what we're talking about here? So what does this word mean? We're going to get there in a second. Before we get to that, I want to say what it doesn't mean. Because what we need to do is kind of hold this word up and like put it in front of a pressure washer and blast away all the lacquered layers of our cultural assumptions to see what Paul's actually getting at here. So first, five things submission is not. First thing, submission is never inferiority. In no way is a Christian wife inferior to her husband. Elsewhere, Paul writes this to the Galatians. He says, There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Now, what does he mean there? That's Galatians 3.28. Does he mean that like all those ethnic and racial and gender lines just get blurred because it doesn't matter anymore? No, he's not talking about the distinctives. He's talking about function. And what he's saying is the gospel is equally accessible because everyone is equally valuable before Christ. Fellow partakers in the gospel. Submission is never inferiority. Second thing submission is not. Submission is never servitude. Servitude says, you have no identity apart from me. And this was first century Ephesus, by the way. In his book, Women in Antiquity, Charles Seltman writes this. In the Roman Empire, a wife was completely under her husband's power. He or she was his chattel or property to to negotiate with. And into that, if you read the Gospels, we see Jesus elevating women because of this image-bearing identity. Submission is not, hey, the Bible says you need to go in the kitchen and make me a sandwich. That's not what he's talking about here. Third thing submission is not. Submission is not necessarily agreement. A Christian wife does not have to agree with her husband and everything. I'm glad nobody amended that because that would have probably tipped the hand. 
But a Christian wife, you don't have to agree with your husband and everything, mindlessly nodding, just whatever you say, dear. Like, in fact, I think you can make the case that Christian marriage takes more grit and more resolve than secular marriage for both husband and wife to be married like God's word calls us to and to be gospel witnesses in the world. This isn't some like empty, mindless June Cleaver thing. It does not necessarily mean agreement. Four things submission is not, and this is where it turns into something else. Submission never outweighs loyalty to Jesus. If a husband says, hey, we should watch porn to spice up our sex life, she says, I'd love to submit to you, but I cannot because my heart belongs to the Lord. I'm going to develop this further as we move through this text, but a Christian husband will never ask his wife to do anything that Jesus would not ask her to do. He wants for her what Jesus wants for her. More on that in a minute. And so knowing that, she can willingly, joyfully place herself under his leadership and care. Fifth thing, submission is never silence. And in our world, this is far too common. I have in mind the manipulation and twisting of this text and others in a way that devalues a wife's dignity or suppresses her worth. This text is never a license to leverage fear or abuse. Wives, hear me. God will never ask you to submit to someone out of fear for what might happen to you if you don't. That is not in the voice of the Lord. So we're going to stop here for a second. If you have been or you are being spiritually manipulated by someone who's using this text or others as a way of creating or leveraging fear in you, these are two numbers on the screen that you need to know. I'm going to put them on the screen for a little bit. They're just going to hang here for a couple seconds in case you need to memorize them. Those watching online, they're going to be in the comment thread. God does not want you to ever live in fear. That is not what this text is talking about at all, and we'll see why in a moment. National Domestic Violence Hotline. This is an anonymous place that you can call. Maybe you want something local, the Domestic Violence Project. Both of those numbers are on the screen. And if you're wondering, you're just going, hey, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe not. If you're at all wondering if there's anything in your spirit, maybe just make the call. So... If that's what submission is not, what is submission biblically? And here's the definition that I want to give us. Submission biblically is a willful decision, not compulsion. A willful decision born out of love for Christ, not born out of fear, to support a husband's leadership whenever possible. A Christian wife doesn't subject herself to her husband like his personal property. She doesn't live in fear of him. She doesn't even have to agree with him. Praise God. <laughs> well, what if he's a jerk? What if he's not worth submitting to? What if he's clueless? Great questions, honest questions, and honestly, very common questions. I'm sure Mandy has asked that question of others about me in seasons of our marriage. And so Paul turns his attention to husbands. Back to the text. And here we're going to find a similar formula. First, a command, and then the reason. Here's what he says in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. 
If you thought submission sounds tough, buckle up, guys. Quick observations. I want to give you three of them. First, and this one should just leap off the page, the standard of a husband's love. Did you catch that? It's right there in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as seen on TV. No, no? Husbands, love your wives as long as you feel like it. No, no? How about this one? Husbands, love your wives as long as she does something for you in return. Sorry, was that across the line? No, that's not the standard. What's the standard? Husbands, love your wives how much? As Christ loved the church. And I read that, and I go, holy smokes, he's the standard? Oof. That's impossible. Like, that put me back in my chair, and I'm going, I can't live up to that. You've got to be kidding me. That's impossible. No can do. That's intentional. And so if you're here this morning, and you are a married man, this text should sober us. If your wife knows Jesus, she already knows what love feels like because she knows him, and she recognizes that love in you, and she also recognizes it when it's not in you. So there's the standard of the husband's love, but looking deeper, there's also a second observation, the word itself, the word for love here. The English language is a really imprecise language. Linguists will tell you it's an idiomatic language. we got lots of words that like, you throw them together and you kind of know what it means. Greek is a really precise language. It's why pastors and theologians love to quote Greek. The New Testament was written in Greek. There's four words that Paul could have chosen for love here. And some of you guys know this, but we're going to get it. This is really profound. First Greek word that Paul could have chosen is phileo. This means brotherly love. That's where we get the city of Brotherly love, Philadelphia. Okay? These are like your people, your tribe. Okay? Second Greek word he could have chose is storge, is kind of how you say this one. Storge. And storge love is like familial love. Now, we would have expected that there, because he's talking about families, right? Not what he uses. Third one, eros. Not hard to see what this one is. This is erotic love. There is a sexual, sensual component to this one. It's romantic. It's reserved for a husband and a wife. That's not what he's talking about here either. Fourth kind of love is agape love. Agape is the kind of love that is known by what it gives up. It is a love that is built on self-sacrifice. Third observation, the goal of a husband's love. Why does a Christian husband love his wife? Why'd you get married, husbands? Don't answer that right now. I'm going to help you out. (laughs) And here's what separates Christian marriage from secular marriage. A Christian husband looks to Jesus' love for his church and patterns his behavior after him because in everything, and I mean everything, guys, The greatest joy that you have as a Christian husband is your wife's sanctification. You want her to become like Jesus, and you're not threatened by his leadership. Put succinctly, his or her sanctification is your joy. You don't make her holy. She is called holy by Jesus. You reinforce that by the way that you serve her and love her. He will do whatever he can to help his wife become like Jesus. So that's the picture, submission and love. So here's how Mandy and I are learning to handle this, okay? We're not perfect at it. I'm just going to give you a scenario from our life. Um, If we have a decision where, like, we're just split right down the middle and we just cannot agree, I'm sure we're the only people who are married who have that scenario. 
And I'll tell you, like, Mandy and I are, like, really nice people, but we're also really stinking stubborn. You may not know that, but if you spend any time with us, like, we just kind of like to have our own way about things. And if there's ever a decision where, like, we are just, like, at loggerheads, like, we just cannot make a decision, like, 50 and 50, like, she's got her chips over here, and I've got my chips over here. Mandy will, in those cases, and I can probably count on one hand the number of times in 19 years we've had that, she will take a chip from her side, and she'll place it over here, and she'll go, this is yours. She goes, this is your decision to make. I hate it when she says that. <laughs> it scares me to death. And, she, and she's not doing it to be manipulative. But what she's doing is she's actually exercising faith in the Lord that if my heart is not right, that the Lord will speak to me and form my heart in that moment to make that decision. Do you see how profoundly humbling that is? I never have to demand it. I never guilt her into giving it. And when it happens, it's like, oh. Do you see how Christ-centered this whole thing is? You can't do this without Jesus. We'll come back to this in a moment. So that's what we're supposed to see. That's relationship number one, marriage. Now Paul follows the exact same formula for relationship number two, family. First, he addresses those who are called to follow. Take a look at chapter six, verse one. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And then he addresses those who are called to lead. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now let's focus on the verbs. Children, obey. We might include honor. Fathers, and we might include mothers in this too, so it's probably practically permissible to say parents here. The command comes in the form of a contrast. It says, do not provoke, but bring up. So we got a little bit more high-definition view for us as parents. So let's deal with the kids first. First, children, obey, honor. And this one is actually really direct. It's not nearly as nuanced as submit is. Basically, your parents aren't dumb, so do what they say. And you're like, wow. Every parent's like, please. <laughs> and then as if Paul needed further support, he reaches all the way back into the Old Testament and he quotes the Ten Commandments, which I read as a gesture to say, look, this principle is nothing new. This has been proven over and over and over and over again. Do parents get it right all the time? No. Sometimes parents mess it up. But they don't need kids' correction. They need the correction that comes from the Lord. In the meantime... Do what they say. They're not dumb. They've seen a thing or two. Well, what if they're jerks? Great question. Here you go, parents. <laughs> the prohibitive verb comes first. Do not exasperate. It's a great word in Greek. It's an idiom, so it's poetic. And it basically means don't pick a fight with your kids, which is way easier said than done, because you know you can win. <laughs> You're wittier, you're smarter, you've been around the block, and so you know you can outfox them. Don't do that. Or, he might say, don't stir sleeping embers. Don't, don't poke the fire. Or, and this one is actually pretty close to the original text, or the meaning of the text, don't shake up the pop can and then open it up. Why? Because it's going to go all over you and you have to clean up a mess. I want to read this one from the message because I think he gets it so right. So just listen to this, just one verse. Fathers, mothers, 
Don't exasperate your children by coming down hard on them. Take them by the hand and lead them in the way of the master. Here's the insight. This is something that Mandy and I are learning as parents as we kind of muddle through this thing imperfectly. We're learning that we actually set the tone as parents. And then if I'm angry, guess who else is going to be angry in my house? Joseph, Karsten, and Hannah. If I'm impatient, guess who's going to be impatient in my house? Joseph, Karsten, and Hannah. It's exactly what Micah talked about last week. Kids watch parents, and they emulate you. Some of us right now don't believe that, and some of us are sighing sighs of regret. Because we look in the rearview mirror and we go, I know, I've messed it up so many times. This all has to do with whether or not you choose to shake up the pop can with your words, your non-words, your decisions, the body language, all that stuff, parents. It's so hard. We'll drill deeper into this in just a bit. Paul then expands in the text. He goes to the third relationship. Now he talks about employment and work. Look in verse 5. Bond servants, we'll come back to this, obey your earthly masters, we'll come back to that, with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, like just trying to get by, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing, this is a great, I love this, knowing that he who is both their master and yours, is in heaven, and there's no partiality with him. Now, at first glance, this one seems a little harder to contextualize than these other two, because these words and images are so closely pulled from Paul's world than ours. He talks about slaves and bondservants and masters. We need, as Americans, with a history, we need to resist the urge to read our American history into this text, because that's not really what he's talking about here. Paul's imagining a scenario of privilege and power as it relates to vocation. This gets really practical really quick. Practically, he's imagining those with power and money and those without. Those who order off the dollar menu and those who order without ever looking at the menu. And we've got to name this, because I think this is important, even in our predominantly upper-middle-class portion of Stark County. At least while we are down here on Earth, money has a way, if we're not careful, of unintentionally communicating and spilling over into our sense of worth. Like, I'm a better person because I'm not like them. We need to be really careful of that. Paul's point is the org chart doesn't define you. The gospel defines you. And that's why he concludes with that last phrase. And there is no partiality with him. Remember, what's he mean? No one brings their resume to heaven. (laughs) Nobody in heaven got there because of a job title. Heaven doesn't have a business class. Anybody who enters heaven, everybody, anywhere, in any point in time who enters heaven, enters as a blood-bought child of God. And so while we're down here, if you work in the service of someone else, remember, they may conduct your performance evaluation, but in the, work, but in the service of God, he has the final say in who you are. Your identity is not your work. Rest in that. 
If while we're down here, you have a position that requires you to lead someone else or a group of someones, remember, one day, you are going to have to give an account to the God who gave you that privilege for the spirit in which you led. And so you don't forget your authority either. So, three relationships, three places where our new life in Christ can come out to play. Marriage, parenting, and and work. And so before we get to some practical applications, because we're going to try and get this as low as I possibly can, I think it's helpful to draw three conclusions. Conclusion number one, God places authority in his world for his glory. Here's the unvarnished truth. Whether we're talking marriage, family, or the workplace, authority exists. It's been ordained by God. We see it right here in his word. And at least in my mind, because I think this is God's mind here, that authority is never based on value, but function. God's word does not teach that men, parents, or bosses are superior in worth, only distinct in function. That's a huge deal. This text actually does us a huge favor because the world actually will tie your value to your position, your role, your income, your place, even your gender. And God's word says, no, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Thinking of these relationships and how authority works, English theologian John Stott puts it like this. Just listen. We may confidently and repeatedly affirm at least three relevant truths. First, the dignity of womanhood, childhood, and servanthood. Secondly, the equality before God of all human beings, irrespective of their race, rank, class, culture, sex, or age, because all are made in his image. Third, the even deeper unity of all Christian believers as fellow members of God's family and of Christ's body. Dignity, equality, and unity. That's the picture of a church that's unified in Christ. Second principle, and this is a big one. All authority is borrowed authority. Husbands, you don't have authority just because you're a man. Parents, you don't have authority just because you made a baby. Supervisors, bosses, business owners, you don't have authority just because you have a job title. You have responsibility. (laughs) Your authority, though, is on loan from God before whom you will one day give an account. And that's why texts like this are actually so helpful because not only do they give us the standard, but they give us the source behind it. Authority, apart from Jesus, is authority that's ripe for abuse. But authority with Jesus as the center, oh, that's good. Speaking practically, when a wife who loves Jesus has trouble following her husband, or when a child doesn't feel safe around their parent, or when an employee feels constantly berated and degraded and marginalized at work, that's not an occasion for the person in authority to look down their nose, raise their finger, and say, follow me anyway. That's an occasion for that person to look inward and ask, am I even a leader worth following in the first place? It could be that their hesitancy might be a sign from the Holy Spirit that you're not who you think you are. It's been that way in my life and in our marriage and in our parenting. Leadership, according to Jesus, should be profoundly liberating 
for those who are called to follow. And it should be deeply sobering for those who are called to lead. All earthly authority is borrowed authority. Well, how am I supposed to lead with any confidence? Great question. Glad you asked. Number three, godly authority is modeled by Jesus. And I want to give us a clear picture of leadership God's way. Here's the scene. It's the night before the crucifixion. Jesus has one last shot to give some inspiring leadership nuggets to his soon-would-be faltering disciples. Upper room, during dinner, they've been talking, and Jesus blows their minds. Just close your eyes and picture this. This is from John 13. Just close your eyes and imagine. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. The majesty of that first verse is only offset by what he does. He knows he's going to God. He knows he's from God. The God who gave all things into him. And what's he do? Towel. He comes to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, you're going to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward, you will understand. Like, you're darn right we don't understand. CEOs don't give pedicures at the company picnic. Head coaches don't come in the water boy at fourth quarter. What are you doing, Jesus? When he washed their feet, he put on his outer garments, and he resumed the place, and he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You all call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. So he doesn't back down from his authority. You call me rabbi, the one who teaches you the truth. Lord, God, wow. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do as I've done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent them. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And that's the sticking point, because Jesus has left us a model of leadership that the world does not know how to follow. And we can't follow that on our own. This is leadership, biblically. This is how Jesus, our master, the one that we follow, redefined leadership for the 12. Secure enough to serve. Strong enough to be safe. Leaders who flaunt and leverage their authority reveal that it isn't just, Je- or it isn't just leadership that they don't understand. They don't understand Jesus. If we're going to call ourselves Christians, our leadership should be foot-washing leadership. So find some dirty feet and get to work. (laughs) Now, let's land the plane. No matter if you're here this morning, you're married, you're single, parents or not, no matter where you land on an org chart, I want to try and wrap around these three relationships, marriage, parenting, and work, and give us five practical tips in the last five minutes into those relationships. First, find your security in Christ. Find your security in Christ. It's so important that Ephesians is broken in half. One through three. Here's what Jesus did. Four through six. Here's our response. Why is that so important? 
Because your marriage can't satisfy you. Parenting can't satisfy you. No matter how many kids you have or adopt. Your job will never satisfy you no matter how much money you make or authority you've been given. Those relationships are designed by God to frustrate you until Christ and to bring you joy after Christ. Expecting those relationships to satisfy you does three things that are absolutely toxic for you. First, we blow right past Jesus' offer for satisfaction. Strike one. Two, We place enormous expectations on someone else who can never satisfy us, strike two. And then we set ourselves up for disappointment, strike three. And so if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus yet, this is going to sound a little kooky, do not do anything I just said. Go back to chapters one through three and say, do I even know the Lord? Because if you don't, if you don't build your marriage and parenting and everything other relationship in your life on the foundation of Jesus and his teachings, then this is just something built on the shaky sand of your own foundation of insecurity. And it's not going to work. Second, be consistent. Be consistent. The other day, um, Mandy called me on something uh, back like in April. I promised her that I would clean out the bathtub. And not like clean, like just pour some hot water on it and like make sure it looks wet. (laughs) Like chemical clean it. And she made it easy for me. She actually bought me like this thing that goes on the end of a drill. It's got like a scrub brush on it. So that way I can feel like I'm playing with power tools while I'm cleaning. She knows me. She gets me. Two months and it still hasn't happened. Gosh, it's not like it's a major issue in our marriage. But like that's not okay. Here's why. Every human relationship is built on trust. And trust is built on two things. Consistency over time. So follow through and do what you say. You offer to take out the trash, take out the trash. Third, check your motive. Check your motive. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but sometimes we do things for others so that they will do things for us. This is so true in marriage and parenting and work. There is a big difference between I'm doing this so that and I'm doing this simply because. I'm doing this so that you'll do this for me. Versus I'm doing this just because I love you. Here's why this is so important. No relationship in your life as a Christian should be ever reduced to a series of transactions. Especially marriage and parenting at work. We don't do things so that. We do things because. Why? Because that's how Jesus did it. Jesus didn't go, oh yeah, all right, I'll go down there and die for them so that they'll worship me. No, that's not the gospel. The gospel is God so loved you, he sent his son to die for you. Just because, because he loves you. Big difference between so that and because. So watch your motive in your marriage, especially. (laughs) Number four, refuse to check out. Refuse to check out. Checking out sounds like this. You know what? I'm done. Whatever. I don't care. This is my poison, by the way, and Mandy could tell it to you. Like, I, I'm ashamed to admit it. I do this one a lot. It's just kind of like the way my flesh tends to go. Checking out hurts so badly because we know, as relational people, there is a very fine line between I don't care about this conversation anymore and I don't care about you anymore. Those two sound so similar when you go, you know what? Whatever. If you want to fix it, it's on you. You know what? I'm going to be silent, and if you want to talk next, you start the conversation. I'm just going to be over here quietly doing this. Don't do that. Why? Because Jesus doesn't do that. Could you imagine if he said that? If he said, you know what? 
yeah, you messed everything up, and if, if you want to make it right, I'll be over here waiting for you. He doesn't do that. Jesus moves forward. Fifth, and this will be the last one, eat last. And this is true if you're a leader or a follower, it doesn't much matter, but especially true if you've been called to lead in any capacity. I think about Mandy's dad for this one. I have known him for 25 years. And usually the whole family is sitting together. It's usually at their house in Chicago because we're eating deep dish pizza, which is the kind of pizza that Jesus eats, by the way. <laughs> if they don't serve deep dish pizza in heaven, I'm not sure I really want to go. Sorry, don't email me. Here's what I've noticed about Mandy's dad. Having pizza with this guy for 25 years. He is always the last in the line to get the food. And he's not showy about it. He doesn't make a big deal about his humility. He just has always seemed to be doing something else, letting his kids, his wife, his sons-in-law, and his grandkids, they'll go first. And then he just kind of comes along and gets what's left. In his book, Leaders Eat Last, Simon Sinek said this. I think this is a brilliant quote. Here's what he says. The true price of leadership is the willingness to place the needs of others above your own. Great leaders truly care about those they are privileged to lead. And understand, now get this, that the true cost of the leadership privilege comes at the expense of self-interest. I want to read that last phrase again. The true cost of the leadership privilege comes at the expense of self-interest. What's he saying? Greater things can be accomplished by serving than commanding. And self-interest is boring. There's more to life than getting what you want when you want it. We're going to move into a time of the Lord's Supper in just a few moments. And I think this is so appropriate again this week. So, band, if you guys want to come out, I think it's actually Micah and Mandy playing. And deacons, if you guys want to get ready to serve. Here's why I think this is so important. We were just in this room in your imagination in John 13 where Jesus washes the disciples' feet around about dinner time. Here's what I need you to hear, though. Jesus didn't just come so that you could have a good leader or a good model of what leadership looks like. Jesus came because he knew we needed a savior. <laughs> that last little bit about leadership being giving up my self-interest, that sounds so much like Jesus, doesn't it? Listen to this. This is from Philippians. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, although he was the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But what? He emptied himself. He emptied himself. Taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of human men and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Why did Jesus die on a cross? To pay for the enormity of our sin because we couldn't serve ourselves. He didn't just die because we're worth it and we're good. No, 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 no. He died because we needed a savior, not just a great leader. We needed a savior. So deacons, if you guys want to come up, a couple quick instructions for you guys. If you don't know the Lord and you've never expressed faith in Christ, not like I want to be a Christian, but like I want to follow Christ. I have a sin problem and he's my solution. Just let this pass you by. It's okay. This is for those who really have trusted Christ. 
as Savior and Lord. Second, as the guys are passing, you'll notice it's a double cup. There's bread on the bottom and there's grape juice on top. These things signify bread, or the bread and wine signify a broken body and shed blood because we needed him to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. So I ask in just a moment as they're passing that you just hold on to them and then I'll come back up and we'll take together. Let's pray. Lord, in this moment, help us to reflect deeply on your sacrifice. Not just that it was good, but that it was necessary. Thank you for saving us, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're gonna close today a little bit differently. I'm not gonna ask you to stand and sing. I'm gonna ask you to sit and reflect. Um, This text is a hard one, again, because these relationships are so fragile. And if you're like me, you read this text and you go, gosh, I'm so far short of what Jesus wants me to be. Regardless of your role or your station or title or any of that, what we're gonna do, we're gonna take just two to three minutes to sit. Micah and Mandy are gonna play, I need you. I just want you to sit quietly and reflect and let the Lord speak to you and then I'll come back up and close this out. Let's just take a few minutes, just you and the Lord.
Lord, help us. We need you. We need you every hour. We need you every minute, every second. We cannot do the things you've called us to do without you. So, Lord, we just say again, we need you. Take our lives, the relationships that you've given to us, those that you've entrusted us with. Lord, help us to point to you in all things. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces, making much of Jesus every day to everyone.